Chapter 12 of Sam in the Suburbs by P.G. Woodhouse. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 12. Sam is much too sudden. 1. The clocks of London were striking twelve when Sam, entering the Strand, turned to the left and made his way toward Fleet Street to keep his tryst with Lord Tilbury at the offices of the Mammoth Publishing Company. In the interval which had elapsed since his parting from Mr. Cornelius, a striking change had taken place in his appearance, for he had paid a visit to that fascinating shop near Covent Garden which displays on its door the legend, Cohen Brothers, Ready-Made Clothiers, and is the mecca of all who prefer to pluck their garments ripe off the bough, instead of waiting for them to grow. The kindly brethren had fitted him out with a tweed suit of bold pattern, a shirt of quality, underclothing, socks, a collar, sock suspenders, a handkerchief, a tie-pin, and a hat with the same swift and unemotional efficiency with which, had he desired it, they would have provided the full costume of an Arctic explorer, a duke about to visit Buckingham Palace, or a big game hunter bound for eastern Africa. Nor had they failed him in the matter of new shoes and a wangi. It was, in short, an edition deluxe of S. Pince and Schotter, richly bound and profusely illustrated, that now presented itself to the notice of the public. The tonic of new clothes is recognized by all students of human nature. Sam walked with a springy jauntiness, and his gay bearing, combined with the brightness of his exterior, drew many eyes upon him. Two of these eyes belonged to a lean and stringy man of mournful countenance, who was moving in the opposite direction, away from London's newspaper land. For a moment they rested upon Sam in a stare that had something of dislike in it, as if their owner resented the intrusion upon his notice of so much cheerfulness. Then they suddenly widened into a stare of horror, and the man stopped, spellbound. A hurrying pedestrian, bumping into him from behind, propelled him forward, and Sam, coming up at four miles an hour, bumped into him in front. The result of the collision was a complicated embrace, from which Sam was extricating himself with apologies, when he perceived that this person with whom he had become entangled was no stranger, but an old friend. "'Hash!' he cried. There was nothing in Mr. Todhunter's aspect to indicate pleasure at the encounter. He breathed heavily and spoke no word. "'Hash, you old devil!' said Sam, joyfully. Mr. Todhunter licked his lips uncomfortably. He cast a swift glance over his shoulder, as if debating the practicability of a dive into the traffic. He endeavored, without success, to loosen the grip of Sam's hand on his coat sleeve. "'What are you wriggling for?' asked Sam, becoming aware of this. "'I'm not wriggling,' said Hash. He spoke huskily, and in a tone that seemed timidly ingratiating. If the voice of Mr. Cornelius had resembled the druid priests, Clarence Todhunter's might have been likened to that of the victim on the altar. I'm not wriggling, Sam. What would I want to wriggle for? Where do you spring from, Hash? Mr. Todhunter coughed. I was just coming from leaving a note for you, Sam, at that place, Tilbury House, where you told me you'd be. You're a great letter writer, aren't you? The illusion was not lost upon Mr. Todhunter. He gulped, and his breathing became almost stertorous. I want to explain about that, Sam, he said. Explain, if I may use the term fully. Sam, said Mr. Todhunter thickly, what I say and what I always have said is, when there's been a little misunderstanding between pals, pals, if I may use the expression, what have stood together side by side, through thick and through thin, pals what have shared and shared alike. He broke off. He was not a man of acute sensibility, but he could see that the phrase, in the circumstances, was an unhappy one. What I say is, Sam, when it's like that, well, there's nothing like letting bygones be bygones and, so to speak, burying the dead past. As a man of the world, you be in one and me be in another, 
I take it, said Sam, from a certain something in your manner, that moth-eaten whippet of yours did not win his race. Sam, said Mr. Todhunter, I will not conceal it from you. I will be frank, open and above board. That whippet did not win. Your money, then, and mine, is now going to support some bookie in the style to which he has been accustomed? It's gone, Sam, admitted Mr. Todhunter in a deathbed voice. Yes, Sam, it's gone. Then come and have a drink, said Sam cordially. A drink. Or two. He led the way to a hostelry that lurked coyly among shops and office buildings. Hash followed, marveling. The first stunned horror had passed, and his mind, such as it was, was wrestling with the insoluble problem of why Sam, with the facts of the whippet disaster plainly before him, was so astoundingly amiable. The hour being early, even for a perpetually thirsty community like that of Fleet Street, the saloon bar into which they made their way was free from the crowds which would have interfered with a quiet chat between friends. Two men who looked like printers were drinking beer in a corner, while at the counter a haughty barmaid was mixing a cocktail for a solitary reveler in a velour's hat. This individual had just made a remark about the weather in a rich and attractive voice, and his intonation was so unmistakably American that Sam glanced at him as he passed, and, glancing, half-stopped, arrested by something strangely familiar about the man's face. It was not a face which anyone would be likely to forget if they had seen it often, and the fact that it had brought no memories back to him inclined Sam to think that he could never have met this rather striking-looking person that must have seen him somewhere on the street or in a hotel lobby. He was a handsome, open-faced man of middle age. I've seen that fellow somewhere before, he said, as he sat with Hash at a table by the window. Have you? said Hash, and there was such a manifest lack of interest in his tone that Sam, surprised at his curtness, awoke to the realization that he had not yet ordered refreshment. He repaired the omission, and Hash's drawn face relaxed. Hash, said Sam, I owe you a lot. Me? said Hash blankly. Yes, you remember that photograph I showed you? The girl Nimrod? Yes, Hash, I've found her, and purely owing to you, if you hadn't taken that money it would never have happened. Mr. Todhunter, though he was far from understanding, endeavored to assume a simper of modest altruism. He listened attentively while Sam related the events of the night. And I've taken the house next door, concluded Sam, and I move in today, so if you want a shore job, the post of cook in the Shotter household is open. How about it? A sort of spasm passed across Hash's wooden features. I've got to get a cook somewhere. Can you leave the ship? Can I leave the ship? Mister, you watch and see how quick I can leave that ruddy ocean-going steam kettle. I've been wanting a shore job ever since I was cloth-headed enough to go to sea. You surprise me, said Sam. I have always looked on you as one of those tough old salts who can't be happy away from deep waters. I thought you sang shanties in your sleep. Well, that's splendid. You'd better go straight down to the house and start getting things fixed up. Here's the key. Write the address down. Mon Repos, Burberry Road, Valley Fields. A sharp crash rang through the room. The man at the bar who had finished his cocktail and was drinking a whiskey and soda had dropped his glass. Here, exclaimed the barmaid, startled, a large hand on the left side of her silken bosom. The man paid no attention to her cry. He was staring with marked agitation at Sam and his companion. How do I get there? asked Hash. By train or bus, there's any number of ways. And I can go straight into the house. Yes, I've taken it from this morning. Sam hurried out. Hash, pausing to write down the address, became aware that he was being spoken to. "'Say, pardon me,' said the fine-looking man who was clutching at his sleeve. "'Might I have a word with you, brother?' "'Well,' said Hash, suspiciously. The last time an American had addressed him as brother it had cost him eleven dollars and seventy-five cents. 
Did I understand your pal who's gone out to say that he had rented a house named Monterey Post down in Valley Fields? Yes, you did. What of it? The man did not reply. Consternation was writ upon his face, and he passed a hand feebly across his broad forehead. The silence was broken by the cold voice of the barmaid. That'll be threepence I'll kindly ask you for for that glass, said the barmaid. And if, she added with asperity, you had to pay for the shock you'd given me, it'd cost you a tenner. Girly, replied the man sadly, watching Hash as he shambled through the doorway. You aren't the only one that's had a shock. 2. While Sam was walking down Fleet Street on his way to Tilbury House, thrilled with the joy of existence, and swishing the air jovially with his newly purchased Wangi, in Tilbury House itself the proprietor of the Mammoth Publishing Company was pacing the floor of his private office, his thumbs in the armholes of his waistcoat, his eyes staring bleakly before him. Lord Tilbury was a short, stout, commending-looking man, and practically everything he did had in it something of the Napoleonic quality. His demeanor now suggested Napoleon in captivity, striding the deck of the Bellerophon with vultures gnawing at his breast. So striking was his attitude that his sister, Mrs. Frances Hammond, who had called to see him, as was her habit when business took her into the neighborhood of Tilbury House, paused aghast in the doorway, while the obsequious boy in buttons who was ushering her in frankly lost his nerve and bolted. "'Good gracious, Georgie,' she cried. "'What's the matter?' His lordship came to a standstill when something faintly resembling relief appeared in his square-cut face. Ever since the days when he had been plain George Pike, starting in business with a small capital and a large ambition, his sister Frances had always been a rock of support. It might be that her advice would help him to cope with the problem which was vexing him now. "'Sit down, Frenzy,' he said. "'Thank goodness you've come. Just the person I want to talk to. "'What's wrong?' "'I'm telling you. "'You remember that when I was in America I met a man named Pinsent?' "'Yes.' This man, Pinsent, was the owner of an island off the coast of Maine. Yes, I know. And you? An island, continued Lord Tilbury, densely covered with trees. He used it merely as a place of retirement, for the purpose of shooting and fishing. But when he invited me there for a weekend, I saw its commercial possibilities in an instant. Yes, you told me. You? I said to myself, proceeded Lord Tilbury, one of whose less engaging peculiarities it was that he never permitted the fact that his audience was familiar with the story to keep him from telling it again. I said to myself, this island, properly developed, could supply all the paper the mammoth needs and save me thousands a year. It was my intention to buy the place and start paper mills. Yes, and paper mills, said Lord Tilbury firmly. I made an offer to Pinsent. He shilly-shallied. I increased my offer. Still, he would give me no definite answer. Sometimes he seemed willing to sell, and then he would change his mind. And then, when I was compelled to leave and return to England, an idea struck me. He had been talking about his nephew and how he was anxious for him to settle down and do something. So you offered to take him over here and employ him in the mammoth, said Mrs. Hammond, with a touch of impatience. She loved and revered her brother, but she could not conceal it from herself that he sometimes tended to be prolix. You thought it would put him under an obligation. Exactly. I imagined I was being shrewd. I supposed that I was introducing into the affair just that little human touch which sometimes makes all the difference. Well, it will be a bitter warning to me never again to be too clever. Half the business deals in this world are ruined by one side or the other trying to be too clever. But George, what has happened? What is wrong? Lord Tilbury resumed his patrol of the carpet. I'm telling you, it was all arranged that he should sail back with me on the Mauritania, but when the vessel left he was nowhere to be found. 
and then, about the second day out, I received a wireless message saying, Sorry not to be with you, coming Araminta. Love to all. I could not make head or tail of it. No, said Mrs. Hammond thoughtfully. It is very puzzling. I think it may possibly have meant... I know what it meant now. The solution, said Lord Tilbury bitterly, was vouchsafed to me only an hour ago by the boy himself. Has he arrived, then? Yes, he has arrived, and he travelled on a tramp steamer. A tramp steamer? But why? 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 How should I know why? Last night, he informed me, he slept in his clothes. Slept in his clothes? Why? How should I know why? Who am I to analyze the motives of a boy who appears to be a perfect imbecile? But have you seen him? No. He rang up on the telephone from the office of a house agent in Valley Fields. He has taken a house there and wished to give my name as a reference. Valley Fields? Why Valley Fields? Don't keep on saying why, cried Lord Tilbury tempestuously. Haven't I told you a dozen times that I don't know why, that I haven't the least idea why? He does seem an eccentric boy. Eccentric. I feel as if I had allowed myself to be settled with the guardianship of a dancing dervish. And when I think that if this young idiot gets into any sort of trouble while he is under my charge, Pinson is sure to hold me responsible, I could kick myself for ever having been fool enough to bring him over here. You mustn't blame yourself, Georgie. It isn't a question of blaming myself. It's a question of Pinsent blaming me and getting annoyed and breaking off the deal about the island. And Lord Tilbury, having removed his thumbs from the armholes of his waistcoat in order them more freely to fling them heavenwards, uttered a complicated sound which might be rendered phonetically by the word core, tenser and more dignified than the coo of the lower-class Londoner, but expressing much the same meaning. In the hushed silence which followed, the buzzer on the desk sounded. Yes, eh? Oh, send him up. Lord Tilbury laid down the instrument and turned to his sister grimly. Shotter is downstairs, he said. Now you will be able to see him for yourself. Mrs. Hammond's first impression, when she saw Sam for herself, was that she had been abruptly confronted with something in between a cyclone and a large Newfoundland puppy dressed in bright tweeds. Sam's mood of elation had grown steadily all the way down Fleet Street, and he burst into the presence of his future employer as if he had just been let off a chain. Well, how are you? he cried, seizing Lord Tilbury's hand in a grip that drew from him a sharp yelp of protest. Then, perceiving for the first time the presence of a fair stranger, he moderated his exuberance somewhat and stared politely. My sister, Mrs. Hammond, said Lord Tilbury, straightening his fingers. Sam bowed. Mrs. Hammond bowed. Perhaps I had better leave you, said Mrs. Hammond. You will want to talk. Oh, don't go, said Sam hospitably. I have business in Lombard Street, said Mrs. Hammond, discouraging with a cold look what seemed to her, rightly or wrongly, a disposition on the part of this young man to do the honors and behave generally as if he were trying to suggest that Tilbury House was his personal property, but that any relative of Lord Tilbury was welcome there. I have to visit my bank. I shall have to visit mine pretty soon, said Sam. Old Wolf will be scratching at the door. If you are short of funds, began Lord Tilbury. Well, I'm all right for the present, thanks. I pinched close on fifty pounds from a man this morning. You did what? said Lord Tilbury blankly. Pinched fifty pounds. Surprising he should have had so much on him, but lucky for me. Did he make any objection to your remarkable behavior? He was asleep at the time, and I didn't wake him. I just left a poached egg on his pillow and came away. Lord Tilbury swallowed convulsively, and his eyes sought that of Mrs. Hammond in a tortured glare. A poached egg? he whispered. So that he would find it there when he woke, explained Sam. Mrs. Hammond had abandoned her intention of withdrawing and leaving the two men together for a cosy chat. Georgie, it seemed to her from his expression, needed a woman's loving support. 
Same appeared to have affected him like some unpleasant drug, causing starting of the eyes and twitching of the muscles. "'It is a pity that you missed the Mauritania, Mr. Shotter,' she said. "'My brother had hoped that you would travel with him so that he could have a good talk about what you were to do when you joined his staff.' "'Great pity,' said Sam, omitting to point out that it was for that very reason that he had allowed the Mauritania to depart without him. "'However, it's all right. I have found my niche.' "'You have done what?' "'I have selected my life work.' He pulled out of his pocket a crumbled paper. I would like to attach myself to Pike's Home Companion. I bought a copy on my way here, and it is the goods. You aren't reading the serial by any chance, are you? Hearts Aflame by Cordelia Blair? A winner. I only had time to glance at the current installment, but it was enough to make me decide to dig up the back numbers at the earliest possible moment. In case you hadn't read it, it is Leslie Mordyke's wedding day, and a veiled woman with a foreign accent has just risen in the body of the church and forbidden the bands. And, said Sam warmly, I don't blame her. It appears that years ago, Lord Tilbury was making motions of distress, and Mrs. Hammond bent solicitously, like one at a sickbed, to catch his fevered whisper. My brother, she announced, wishes, was hoping, corrected Lord Tilbury. Was hoping, said Mrs. Hammond, accepting the emendation, that he would join the staff of the Daily Record so that he might be under his personal eye. Sam caught Lord Tilbury's personal eye, decided that he had no wish to be under it, and shook his head. The Home Companion, said Lord Tilbury, coming to life, is a very minor unit of my group of papers. Though it has a large circulation, said Mrs. Hemond loyally. A very large circulation, of course, said Lord Tilbury, but it offers little scope for a young man in your position, anxious to start on a journalistic career. It is not, how shall I put it, it is not a vital paper, not a paper that really matters. In comparison with my brother's other papers, said Mrs. Hemond. "'in comparison with my other papers, of course.' "'I think you are wrong,' said Sam. "'I cannot imagine a nobler life work for any man "'than to help produce Pike's Home Companion. "'Talk about spreading sweetness and light. "'Why, Pike's Home Companion is the paper "'that wrote the words and music. "'Listen to this. "'A.M.B. Brixton. "'You ask me for a simple and inexpensive method "'of curing corns. "'Get an ordinary swede or turnip, "'cut and dig out a hole in the top, "'fill the hole with common salt "'and allow to stand till dissolved, "'soften the corn morning and night with this liquid.' Starting on the reportorial staff of the Daily Record, said Lord Tilbury, you would be in a position... Just try to realize what that means, proceeded Sam. What it amounts to is that the writer of that paragraph has, with the stroke of the pen, made the world a better place. He has brightened a home. Possibly he has averted serious trouble between man and wife. A.M.B. gets the ordinary Swede, digs out the top, pushes in the salt, and a week later she has ceased to bully her husband and beat the baby and is a ray of sunshine about the house and all through Peg's home companion. "'What my brother means,' said Mrs. Hammond. "'Similarly,' said Sam, "'with G.D.H. Tulse Hill, "'who wants to know how to improve the flavor of prunes. "'You or I would say that the flavor of prunes was past praying for, "'that the only thing to do when cornered by a prune "'was to set your teeth and get it over with. "'Not so pikes,' he means. "'Home companion. "'A little vinegar added to stewed prunes,' says the writer, "'greatly improves the flavor, "'and although it may seem strange, "'it causes less sugar to be used. "'What happens? "'What is the result?' G.D.H.'s husband comes back tired and hungry after a day's work. Prunes for dinner again, I suppose, he says moodily. Yes, dear, replies G.D.H., but I've a greatly improved flavor. Well, he doesn't believe her, of course. He sits down sullenly. Then as he deposits the first stone on his plate, a delighted smile comes into his face. By Jove, he cries, the flavor is greatly improved. They still taste like brown paper soaked in machine oil, but a much superior grade of brown paper. How did you manage it? It was not I, dearest, says G.D.H., but Pike's home companion. 
Acting on their advice, I added a little vinegar, with the result that not only is the flavor greatly improved, but, strange though it may seem, I used less sugar. Heaven bless Pike's home companion, cries the husband. With your permission, then, said Sam, I will go straight to Mr. Wren and inform him that I have come to fight the good fight under his banner. Mr. Wren, I shall say. Lord Tilbury was perplexed. Do you know Wren? How do you know Wren? I have not yet had the pleasure of meeting him, but we are next-door neighbors. I have taken the house adjoining his. Monrepose, Borbury Road, is the address. You can see for yourself how convenient this will be. Not only shall we toil all day in the office to make Pike's home companion more and more of a force among the intelligentsia of Great Britain, but in the evenings, as we till our radishes, I shall look over the fence and say, Wren? And Wren will say, Yes, Shotter? And I shall say, Wren, how would it be to run a series on the eradication of pimples and canaries? Shotter, he will reply, dropping his spade in his enthusiasm. This is genius. "'Twas a lucky day, boy, for the old home companion when you came to us. But I am wasting time. I should be about my business. Goodbye, Mrs. Hammond. Goodbye, Lord Tilbury. Don't trouble to come with me. I will find my way. He left the room with the purposeful step of the man of affairs, and Lord Tilbury uttered a sound which was almost a groan. "'Insane,' he ejaculated. "'Perfectly insane.' Mrs. Hammond, woman-like, was not satisfied with this simple explanation. "'There is something behind this, George.' "'And I can't do a thing,' moaned his lordship, chafing, as a strong man will, against the bonds of fate. "'I simply must humour this boy, or the first thing I know he'll be running off on some idiotic prank, and Pinsent will be sending me cables asking me why he has left me.' "'There is something behind this,' repeated Mrs. Hammond weightily. "'It stands to reason. Even a boy like this young shotter would not take a house next door to Mr. Wren the moment he landed unless he had some motive. George, there is a girl at the bottom of this.' Lord Tilbury underwent a sort of minor convulsion. His eyes bulged, and he grasped the arms of his chair. "'Good God, Francie, don't say that. Pinsent took me aside before I left and warned me most emphatically to be careful how I allowed this boy to come in contact with, uh, members of the opposite sex.' "'Girls,' said Mrs. Hammond. "'Yes, girls,' said Lord Tilbury, as if pleasantly surprised at this neat way of putting it. "'He said he had trouble a year or so ago.' "'Mr. Wren must have a daughter,' said Mrs. Hammond, resuming her train of thought. "'Has Mr. Wren a daughter?' "'How the devil should I know?' demanded his lordship, not unnaturally irritated. "'I don't keep in touch with the home life of every man in this building. "'Ring him up and ask him.' "'I won't. I don't want my staff to think I've gone off my head. "'Besides, you may be quite wrong.' "'I shall be extremely surprised if I am,' said Mrs. Hammond. "'Lord Tilbury sat gazing at her pallidly. "'He knew that Frenzy had a sixth sense in these matters. Three. At about the moment when Sam entered the luxuriously furnished office of the Mammoth Publishing Company's proprietor and chief, in a smaller and less ornate room in the same building, Mr. Matthew Wren, all unconscious of the good fortune about to descend upon him in the shape of an addition to his staff of a live and go-ahead young assistant, was seated at his desk, busily engaged in promoting the best interests of that widely read weekly, Pike's Home Companion. He was, in fact, correcting the proofs of an article, ably written, but too long to quote here, entitled, what a young girl can do in her spare time, number three, beekeeping. He was interrupted in this task by the opening of the door, and looking up, was surprised to see his niece, Kay Derrick. Why, Kay? said Mr. Wren. She had never visited him at his office so early as this, for Mrs. Winnington Bates expected her serfs to remain on duty till at least four o'clock. In her blue eyes, moreover, there was a strange glitter that made him subtly uneasy. Why, Kay, what are you doing here? Kay sat down on the desk. 
Having ruffled his grizzled hair with an affectionate hand, she remained for a while in silent meditation. I hate young men, she observed at length. Why isn't everyone nice and old? I mean, elderly but frightfully well-preserved, like you, darling. Is anything the matter? asked Mr. Wren anxiously. Nothing much. I've left Mrs. Bates. I'm very glad to hear it, my dear. There is no earthly reason why you should have to waste your time slaving. You're worse than Claire, said Kay, her eyes ceasing to glitter. You both conspire to coddle me. I'm young and strong, and I ought to be earning my living. But, she went on, tapping his head with her finger to emphasize her words, I will not continue in a job which involves being kissed by worms like Claude Bates. No, 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 sir. Mr. Wren raised a shocked and wrathful face. He kissed you? Yes. You had an article in the Home Companion last week, Uncle, saying what a holy and beautiful thing the first kiss is. Well, Claude Bates wasn't. He hadn't shaved, and he was wearing a dressing gown. Also, he was pallid and greenish, and looked as if he had been out all night. Anything less beautiful and holy I never saw. He kissed you? What did you do? I hit him very hard with a book which I was taking to read to Mrs. Bates. It was the Reverend Aubrey Jerningham's Is There a Hell? And I'll bet Claude thought there was. Until then, I had always rather disliked Mrs. Bates' taste in literature, which shows how foolish I was. If she had preferred magazines, where would I have been? There were about six hundred pages of Aubrey Jerningham, bound in stiff cloth, and he blacked Claude's eye like a scholar and a gentleman. And at that moment in came Mrs. Bates. Yes, said Mr. Wren, enthralled. Well, the boy's best friend is his mother. Have you ever seen one of those cowboy films where there is trouble in the barroom? It was like that. Mrs. Bates started to dismiss me, but I got in first with my resignation, shooting from the hip, as it were, and then I came away, and here I am. The fellow should be horsewhipped, said Mr. Wren, breathing heavily. He isn't worth bothering about, said Kay. The riot of emotion into which she had been plunged by the addresses of the unshaven Bates had puzzled her, but now she understood. It was galling to suppose so monstrous a thing, but the explanation was, she felt, that there had been condescension in his embrace. If she had been Miss Derrick of Midways, he would not have summoned up the nerve to kiss her in a million years, but his mother's secretary and companion held no terror for him. And at the thought, a deep thrill of gratitude to the Reverend Aubrey Jerningham passed through Kay. How many a time, wearied by his duties about the parish, must that excellent clergyman have been tempted to skimp his work and shirk the labor of adding that extra couple of thousand words which just make all the difference to literature when considered in the light of a missal. But he had been strong, he had completed his full six hundred pages, and had seen to it that his binding had been heavy and hard and sharp about the edges. For a moment, as she sat there, the Reverend Aubrey Jerningham seemed to decay the one bright spot in the black world. She was still meditating upon him when there was a hearty smack on the door and Sam came in. "'Good morning, good morning,' he said cheerily. And then he saw Kay, and on the instant his eyes widened into a goggling stare, his mouth fell open, his fingers clutched wildly at nothing, and he stood there, gasping." Came at his stare with a defiant eye. In her present mood, she disliked all young men, and there seemed nothing about this one to entitle him to exemption from her loathing. Rather, indeed, the reverse, for his appearance jarred upon her fastidious taste. If the Cohen brothers of Covent Garden have a fault, it is that they sometimes allow their clients to select clothes that are a shade too prismatic for anyone who is not at the same time purchasing a banjo and a straw hat with a crimson ribbon. Fittings take place in a dimly lit interior, with the result that suits destined to make phlegmatic horses shy in the open street seem in the shop to possess merely a rather pleasing vivacity. One of these Sam had bought, and it had been a blunder on his part. If he had intended to sing comic songs from a punt at Henley Regatta, he would have been suitably, even admirably, attired, but as a private gentleman he was a little on the bright side. 
He looked, in fact, like a bookmaker who won billiard tournaments, and Kay gazed upon him with repulsion. He, on the other hand, gazed at her with stunned admiration. That photograph should have prepared him for something notable in the way of feminine beauty, but it seemed to him, as he raked her with eyes like small dinner plates, that it had been a libel, an outrage, a gross caricature. This girl before him was marvelous. Helen of Troy could have been nothing to her. He loved her shining eyes, unaware that they shone with loathing. He worshipped her rose-flushed cheeks, not knowing that they were flushed because he had been staring at her for forty-three seconds without blinking, and she was growing restive beneath his gaze. Mr. Wren was the first to speak. "'Did you want anything?' he asked. "'What?' said Sam. "'Is there anything I can do for you?' "'Eh?' Mr. Wren approached the matter from a fresh angle. "'This is the office of Pike's Home Companion. I am Mr. Wren, the editor. Did you wish to see me?' "'Who?' said Sam. At this point, Kay turned to the window, and the withdrawal of her eyes had the effect of releasing Sam from his trance. He became aware that a gray-haired man, whom he dimly remembered having seen on his entry into the room some hours before, was addressing him. "'I beg your pardon?' "'You wished to see me?' "'Yes,' said Sam. "'Yes, yes.' "'What about?' asked Mr. Wren patiently. The directness and simplicity of the question seemed to clear Sam's head. He recalled now what it was that had brought him here. I've come over from America to join the staff of Pike's Home Companion. What? Lord Tilbury wants me to. Lord Tilbury? Yes, I've just been seeing him. But he has said nothing to me about this, Mr... Shotter! No, we only arranged it a moment ago. Mr. Wren was a courteous man, and though he was under the impression that his visitor was raving, he did not show it. Perhaps I had better see Lord Tilbury, he suggested, rising. By the way, my niece, Miss Derrick. Kay, my dear, Mr. Shotter. The departure of the third party and the sudden institution of the intimacies of a tete-a-tete -tete had the usual effect of producing a momentary silence. Then Kay moved away from the window and came to the desk. Did you say you had come from America? She asked, fiddling with Mr. Wren's editorial pencil. She had no desire to know, but she supposed she must engage this person in conversation. From America, yes, yes, from America. Is this your first visit to England? Asked Kay, stifling a yawn. Oh no, I was at school in England. Really? Where? At Wrecken. Kay's attitude of stiff aloofness relaxed. She became interested. Good gracious, of course. She looked upon him quite benevolently. A friend of yours was talking to me about you only yesterday, Willoughby Braddock. Do you know the Bredder? gulped Sam, astounded. I've known him all my life. A most extraordinary sensation flooded over Sam. It was hard to analyze, but its effects were thoroughly definite. At the discovery that this wonderful girl knew the old Bredder, and that they could pave the way to a beautiful friendship by talking about the old Bredder, the office of Pike's home companion became all at once flooded with brilliant sunshine. Birds twittered from the ceiling, and blended with their notes with the soft music of violins and harps. You do I know the Bredder? We were children together. What a splendid chap. Yes, he's a dear. What a corker. Yes. What an egg. Yes. Tell me, Mr. Schotter said Kay, wearying of this eulogy. Do you remember a boy at your school named Bates? Sam's face darkened. Time had softened the anguish at that moment outside the angry cheese, but the sting still remained. Yes, I do. Willoughby Braddock told me that you once beat Bates with a walking stick. Yes. A large walking stick? Yes. Did you beat him hard? Yes, as hard as ever I could lay it in. A little sigh of gratification escaped Kay. Ah, she said. 
In the course of the foregoing conversation, the two had been diminishing inch by inch the gap which had separated them at its outset, so that they had come to be standing only a short distance apart, and now, as she heard those beautiful words, Kay looked up into Sam's face with a cordial, congratulatory friendliness which caused him to quiver like a smitten blancmange. Then, while he was still reeling, she smiled. And it is at this point that the task of setting down the sequence of events becomes difficult for the historian. For, briefly, what happened next was that Sam, groping forward in a bemused fashion and gathering her clumsily into his arms, kissed Kay. 4. It might, of course, be possible to lay no stress upon this occurrence, to ignore it and pass. In kissing, as kissing, there was nothing fundamentally reprehensible. The early Christians used to do it all the time to everyone they met, but the historian is too conscious of the raised eyebrows of his audience to attempt this attitude. Some explanation, he realizes, some argument to show why Sam is not to be condemned out of hand, is imperative. In these circumstances, the embarrassing nature of the historian's position is readily intelligible. Only a short while back, he was inviting the customers to shudder with loathing at the spectacle of Claude Bates kissing this girl, and now, all in a flash, he finds himself faced with the task of endeavoring to palliate the behavior of Sam Shotter in doing the very same thing. Well, he must do the best he can. Let us marshal the facts. In the first place, there stood on Mr. Wren's desk, as on every other editorial desk in Tilbury House, a large framed card bearing the words, DO IT NOW! Who shall say whether this may not subconsciously have influenced the young man? In the second place, when you have been carrying about a girl's photograph in your breast pocket for four months and brooding over it several times a day with a beating heart, it is difficult for you to regard that girl, when you eventually meet her, as a perfect stranger. And in the third place, and here we approach the very root of the matter, there was the smile. Girls as pretty as Kay Derrick, especially if their faces are by nature a little grave, should be extremely careful how and when they smile. There was that about Kay's face when in repose which, even when she was merely wondering what trimming to put on a hat, gave strangers the impression that here was a pure white soul musing wistfully on life's sadness. The consequence was that when she smiled it was as if the sun had suddenly shone out through clouds. Her smile seemed to make the world on the instant a sweeter and better place. Policemen, when she flashed it on them after being told the way somewhere, became of a sudden gayer, happier policemen, and sang as they directed the traffic. Beggars, receiving it as a supplement to a small donation, perked up like magic and started to bite the ears of the passers-by with an abandon that made all the difference. And when they saw that smile, even babies in their perambulators stopped looking like peevish poached eggs and became almost human. And it was this smile that she had bestowed upon Sam. And Sam, it will be remembered, had been waiting months and months for it. We have made out, we fancy, a pretty good case for Samuel Shotter, and it was a pity that some kindly person was not present in Mr. Wren's office at that moment to place these arguments before Kay. For not one of them occurred to her independently. She could see no excuse whatever for Sam's conduct. She had wrenched herself from his grasp and moved to the other side of the desk, and across this she now regarded him with a blazing eye. Her fists were clenched and she was breathing heavily, she had the air of a girl who would have given a year's pocket money for a copy of the Reverend Aubrey Jerningham's Is There a Hell? Gone with that delightful spirit of comradeship which, when he had been telling of his boyish dealings with Claude, had made him seem almost a kindred soul. Gone with that soft sensation of gratitude which had come to her on his assurance that he had not risked spoiling that repulsive youth by sparing the rod. All she felt now was that her first impression of this young man had been right, and that she had been mauled and insulted by a black-hearted bounder, whose very clothes should have warned her of his innate despicableness. It seems almost incredible that anyone should think such a thing of anybody, but it is a fact that in that instant Kay Derrick looked upon Sam as something even lower in the graduated scale of human subspecies than Claude Winnington Bates. As for Sam, he was still under the ether. Nothing is more difficult for both parties concerned than to know what to say immediately after an occurrence like this. 
An agitated silence was brooding over the room when the necessity for speech was removed by the re-entry of Mr. Wren. Mr. Wren was not an observant man, nor was he sensitive to atmosphere. He saw nothing unusual in his niece's aspect, nothing out of the way in Sam's. The fact that the air inside the office of Pike's home companion was quivering with charged emotion escaped his notice altogether. He addressed Sam genially. It is quite all right, Mr. Schotter. Lord Tilbury wishes you to start work on the companion at once. Sam turned to him with a vague stare of the newly awakened sleepwalker. It will be nice to have you in the office, added Mr. Wren amiably. I have been short-handed. By the way, Lord Tilbury asked me to send you along to him at once. He is just going out to lunch. Lunch? said Sam. He said you were lunching with him. Oh, yes, said Sam dully. Mr. Wren watched him shamble out of the room with a benevolent eye. We'll go and have a bite to eat, too, my dear, he said, removing the alpaca coat which was his custom to wear in the office. Haven't had lunch with you since I don't know when. He reached for the hook which held his other coat. I shall like having this young shotter in the office, he said. He seems a nice young fellow. He is the most utterly loathsome creature I have ever met, said Kay. Mr. Wren, startled, dropped his hat. Eh? What do you mean? Just what I say. He's horrible. But, my dear girl, you only met him five minutes ago. I know. Mr. Wren stooped for his hat and smoothed it with some agitation. This is rather awkward, he said. What is? You're feeling like that about young Shotter. I don't see why. I don't suppose I shall ever meet him again. But you will. I don't see how it can be prevented. Lord Tolbury tells me that this young man has taken a lease on Mon Repose. Mon Repose? Kay clutched at the desk. You don't mean Mon Repose next door to us? Yes, it is so difficult to avoid one's next door neighbors. Kay's teeth met with a little click. It can be done, she said. End of chapter 12